0: Let's stand as we sing our dox- the doxology. Children who are going to Children's Church can follow Toby, and the rest of us can turn to Mark chapter seven. In the few Bibles, it is page one thousand and two, Mark seven twenty-four to thirty-seven. beginning at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and this is Jesus. Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand upon him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Ephphatha," that is, be opened. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Lord, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you would open our hearts, our spiritual eyes to see you to hear what you want us to receive from this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like an outsider, someone who doesn't belong, doesn't fit in, doesn't feel at home? Maybe you have uh, spent some time living in another country where you didn't speak the language, Uh, the weather, the food, the way people think and talk and speak and go about their lives just feels different. Or maybe you grew up in another country, or another, even another part of the United States, and uh, you might have been here in New England for a little while, uh, but New England just doesn't quite feel like home. Uh, you know, sometimes people can have similar feelings about church. I remember one person who said to me several years ago, he said, when I first walked through the door of, of, a, of this church, he was part of our old church in New Haven, he said, I was absolutely terrified I was convinced that the roof would fall in on me. And for a long time, I was afraid to come for that reason. Uh, But you know, I think it's even possible to come to church regularly for a long time and yet still not quite feel at home. Uh, Some people feel like when they come to church that they have to sort of put on a happy face, pretend that nothing's wrong, uh, even if on the inside they feel like they're falling apart. Other people feel like there's something in their background, some part of their life story that's been a source of shame and rejection in the past, and they're hesitant to open up about it for fear that they'll experience that shame and rejection all over again. See, I think feeling like an outsider in one respect or another is not an uncommon human experience. And in this morning's passage, we meet two people who would have been seen as and who very likely felt like outsiders in relation to Jesus and his disciples. So I want us to consider three things. First, who these people were. Second, how Jesus responded to them. And third, what we can learn from them. Who they were, how Jesus responded to them, what we can learn from them. So first, who these people were. Now, as background to this passage, remember that Jesus was a Jewish teacher of the Jewish scriptures who had 12 Jewish disciples. He was raised in a Jewish town by Jewish parents and so far, in Mark's account, Jesus has conducted his ministry almost exclusively in primarily Jewish communities, Jewish areas. But in this section, Jesus traveled into non-Jewish territory, Gentile territory. That is Tyre and Sidon, verse 24. Uh, That's modern-day Lebanon. It was ancient Phoenicia. Uh, Tyre was about 35 miles northwest of Gennesaret, which is the last town that Jesus is uh, mentioned as being in in Mark 653, about 35 miles northwest of there. Um, It was a prosperous trading city, uh, but it also had a history of being hostile to the Jewish people and the Jewish faith. So it was a center of pagan worship where many different gods were worshiped. And uh, the Jewish historian Josephus described the people of Tyre as notoriously our bitterest enemies. So this was uh, sort of hostile, potentially at least hostile territory. And you might ask, why would Jesus go there? Why would Jesus go to a place that was notoriously hostile to his own people? Uh, why would he leave his home, sort of his home territory, his own country? Jesus and his disciples were not especially well off, so they wouldn't have been seen as wealthy tourists. Um, People in Tyre might have looked at them funny. You know, what are those, what's that group of guys, fishermen and all these other guys from Galilee, why are they doing in our neighborhood? That might have been the response they might have received. Uh, Now the primary purpose of Jesus' trip seems to have been to get some quiet time alone with his disciples. doesn't say it explicitly, but if you remember, over the last few sections, when Jesus is in Galilee, he keeps trying to get away, and the crowds keep on following him. So uh, his disciples can't even sit down to eat, so he goes across the lake, and guess what? A big crowd is there, just ready for him to land, and then he feeds the 5,000, then he goes back to the other side of the lake, then there's big crowds there who want him to heal them, and he does. Uh, So more and more crowds... Uh, He can't get any time alone with his disciples hardly, and he's experiencing increasing opposition. Last week we saw the Pharisees who came up from Jerusalem and who were debating with him and challenging him and opposing him. So, it seems like Jesus went away to a place where he wasn't as well known, uh, where he wouldn't be expected to go, and hopefully he and his disciples could have some peace. Verse 24 says, he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know. But then, the first person arrives. For Verse 25, a woman whose little daughter <clears throat> had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, it's interesting that Mark uh, identifies her in this way because compared to Jesus, she was an outsider in almost every respect. So, first of all, we learned that she was a woman. And most rabbis at that time uh, did not have women followers. They, and most of them, refused to teach uh, the law to women. Uh, But she wasn't only a woman, she was also a Gentile, which meant she was not of the people of Israel, and she was a Syrophoenician by birth, born and raised in hostile territory, descended from the enemies of Israel, And her daughter was troubled by a demon, which might have made some people fearful of associating with her. Another uh, fact is that her husband is nowhere mentioned in this story. We don't know what that means. Maybe she was widowed. Maybe she was divorced. Maybe her husband thought she was crazy to go approach this Jewish teacher, Jesus. Whatever the situation, she goes anyway. She comes all by herself. Now, it's hard for us to imagine how unusual it would be in a traditional society for a woman all by herself to walk into a private house where a religious teacher of a different race was teaching his group of male disciples. I Just try to imagine. That, that would have been a very intimidating uh, scenario to walk into. I mean, you're interrupting a religious teacher, and you're a woman, and everybody else in that room is not like you. But there was something about Jesus that attracted the woman because it says she had heard of him. She had heard something perhaps about his compassion for people, his power to heal and help people. And so she goes anyway. She comes and falls at his feet. Interestingly, that's the same uh, verb that's used of Jairus back in chapter 5. Jairus, the synagogue ruler... So Jairus, the Jewish synagogue ruler, comes and falls at Jesus' feet and says, please heal my daughter, she's dying. And this Gentile woman does the same thing. She approaches Jesus in the same way, with humility and faith, and says, please, come, help my please help my little daughter. Now, she's not the only outsider who came to Jesus. Verse 31, we see the second person, and uh second geographical reference, verse 31, says he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's a strange geographical route to go because Sidon was north of Tyre. So if Jesus is in Tyre, it means he goes north to Sidon and then around toward the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The only reason you would do that would be to remain in Gentile territory, right? He's staying outside of the borders of Israel during this whole trip, Um so And the Decapolis is another predominantly Gentile region. In verse 32, people bring to him uh, a man with a disability who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And again, the same verb is used. They begged him, please, Jesus, lay your hand upon him. I think having a disability can be an isolating and painful experience. It can make someone feel like an outsider in, a whole, in many kinds of ways. So in both cases, these people are in desperate need. They would have been seen as outsiders, probably felt like outsiders. They're facing something far bigger than they can handle, but and no one else can solve their problem, but they come to Jesus, or people bring them to Jesus in the second case and beg Jesus, please help. So that's who these people were. Second, we see how Jesus responded to them. Now, in the case of the deaf and speech-impaired man, it says Jesus took him aside. And, and it's very interesting, Jesus didn't remain at a distance from him. Uh, he didn't sort of deal with him in an assembly line kind of way, an impersonal way. Um, but no, he made a concrete, physical, personal connection to him. Uh, he didn't just speak to the man because, you know, perhaps the man might not understand his words, certainly couldn't hear his tone, even if he could read his lips. But he sort of relates to him in a way he can understand. He puts his fingers in the man's ears as if to say, I am going to open your ears. And then he touched the man's tongue with his own saliva as if to say, I will fill your mouth with my life-giving power. And then he looked up to heaven relying upon his heavenly father and he sighed. You know, Perhaps that's an expression of his heartache over the ravages of disease or his deep and heartfelt prayer, his deep Uh, identification with this man's condition. And finally, he speaks his liberating word, be opened. It's a picture of Jesus doing a work of recreation through his word and through his touch. Uh, Verse 35 could be translated literally, the chain of his tongue was loosed. It was an act of liberating mercy. And a beautiful picture of restoration. It's also a fulfillment of the prophecy we read from Isaiah 35. And in fact, the word that Mark uses that's translated speech impediment in verse 32 only appears in one other place in the whole Bible, and it's in the passage we just read from Isaiah 35, where it's translated mute. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And so, uh, again, as we looked at, Isaiah 35 is a picture of all of creation being restored and renewed, and seeing, people seeing God's glory, experiencing his restoration— And even before the time of Jesus, Jewish scholars understood that passage to be describing the time of the Messiah. So they looked forward to when the Messiah would come and bring that kind of restoration and recreation. And so Mark is showing us Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one that the people of Israel have been looking for all along. And yet he shows us here that his salvation is not only for his own people, but also for outsiders also for Gentiles, also for other nations. So that's how Jesus responded to the second man. But if we go back to the first story about the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus' response is a bit more complicated. You might have noticed, verse 27, Jesus seems to refuse her request for help. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You might say, what does that mean? Uh, in Jesus' time, the Jewish people understood themselves to be the children of God and they sometimes referred to Gentiles who worshipped many other gods as dogs. And that was not a positive reference. One writer said, uh, one Jewish writer at the time said, as the sacred food was intended for humans, not for dogs, the law was intended to be given to the chosen people but not to the Gentiles. And if you look up all the references to dogs in the Old Testament, they're almost. Especially dogs are seen as scavengers who ate garbage and dead things. They were unclean, and you should stay away from them. And that's how most Jewish people viewed Gentiles at the time. So you might say, what in the world does Jesus mean here? I mean, is Jesus insulting her? Is Jesus telling her he doesn't want to deal with her? What is going on? Well, I think this uh, verse is a helpful... Uh, place to stop and think about what do we do when we read a Bible verse that seems confusing right or that doesn't initially seem to make sense Uh, so one thing that we should do is we should look at the broader context of where does this verse appear and what story is it in the middle of and uh, as we have seen the broader context of this whole chapter is about Jesus breaking down barriers so that Gentiles, as well as Jews, can experience his power, his presence, his salvation. Uh, so remember last week we saw Jesus debating with the Pharisees about what makes people clean or unclean. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, it's not the outward uh, rituals and it's not even the uh, eating kosher food. Verse 19, Jesus declared all foods clean. That was a very radical statement. So Jesus was saying, and the implication of that statement uh, is that if all foods are clean, therefore all people can, Gentiles as well as Jews, can come to Jesus and become clean before God and can eat together at the same table. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. right? Mark was writing as a member of the early church, and when Christians in the early church gathered together, there were Jews and Gentiles, and they would eat together at the same table, and that was a very radical thing. Because in the, the ancient world was very tribal. And so you would only eat with people sort of from your own tribe. And Jews would not normally eat with Gentiles. But in the early church, uh, people came together across many barriers because they had found unity through and salvation through Jesus. And they realized that what we share in Jesus is more important than, than any other differences that we might have. So uh, the... Uh, The broader message of this chapter is about the blessing of Jesus' kingdom being extended to the Gentiles and not limited only to the Jews. So, therefore, this verse in the middle of this section can't be a complete rejection of the Syrophoenician woman because that wouldn't make any sense in the larger context of this section. That's the first thing to do. See a confusing Bible verse? Look at the context. Second uh, thing that's helpful to do is dig a little deeper. Let's take a closer look at the verse itself. Uh, and when we look at verse 27, we see a few things. Number one is uh, Jesus does use the terms children and dogs, which are commonly used for Jews and Gentiles, but he doesn't use the typical word for a stray scavenger dog. He uses the diminutive form, which is normally used for a pet dog, or we might say a puppy. Right? Now, a pet dog, unlike a stray dog, can be part of the family. Okay, so there's a different image. And second thing to notice, verse 27, he says, let the children, uh, referring either to Jesus' Jewish disciples, right? He had come to spend some time, some quiet time away with them, and he really needed to have that quiet time away with them and not be constantly interrupted by other people, Um, uh, or referring to the people of Israel, generally, let the children be fed first. Now, be fed first, it doesn't mean that no one else can ever be fed. It just means that during Jesus' earthly ministry, his priority was to begin with his own people, the people of Israel whom God had prepared for centuries uh, for his coming. So Jesus wasn't ready to start a full-fledged mission to the Gentiles, although that would happen after his death and resurrection. So um, Jesus had come to Tyre and Sidon to get some needed quality time with his disciples. And notice in this passage, he doesn't teach large groups of people. It's one thing he does almost everywhere else, but he doesn't teach large groups of people when he's out in Gentile territory. Uh, So that's the second thing. Third observation is, by saying what Jesus did in verse 27, Jesus didn't end the conversation. Rather, he was intentionally inviting a response from the woman. So one writer put it this way, Jesus is like a wise teacher who allows and even provokes his student to make a victorious argument against his own apparent reluctance. Or another way to put that would be Jesus tells the woman a parable. Right Throughout Mark we've seen Jesus tells parables, they're stories using common images, but they're stories about God's kingdom. And the parables are meant to draw people in and provoke a response. So it's a little bit like a doorway that's open just a crack, and you can see there's light on the inside of the doorway, but you can't see what's inside the door until you try to push open the door. Until you knock. And that's, what, that's exactly what this woman does. She picks up on all of Jesus' cues. She says, yes, Lord. In other words, I know that you're a Jew and I'm not. I know that your primary purpose right now is to teach your disciples and minister to to your people, but isn't there enough for me to get a bite too? That's what she says. Even the little dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's saying, I don't need to take anything away from your disciples or your people, but I believe that you have enough to meet my need and my people's need as well as theirs. And Jesus says, in verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Request granted. In Matthew's account of this same story, Jesus specifically praises the woman's faith. He says, oh woman, great is your faith. This woman, who had only heard about Jesus, and only had a brief interaction with Jesus that initially might have seemed very discouraging, persists in seeking him, and displays even more faith than Jesus' disciples have at this time. You see, remember what faith is? Faith is reaching out to Jesus and not letting anything get between you and him. And that's exactly what this woman does. She reaches out to Jesus, and she's not discouraged by anything, and she keeps reaching out to Jesus and says, but isn't there enough for me too? And Jesus says, yes, there is. You got it. She's actually the some ways, she's the first person in the Gospel of Mark who hears a parable of Jesus and responds rightly to it. Um, so we've seen who these people were. We've seen how Jesus responded to them. Finally, let's conclude with, what can we learn? What can we learn from uh, this woman and this uh, deaf man uh, who was deaf and had a speech impediment? So I think we can learn three things from these outsiders who encounter Jesus. Number one, we can approach Jesus with boldness. We can approach Jesus not because we deserve help, but because we need help. Not because we have a squeaky clean resume with perfect qualifications and an impressive pedigree, but simply because Jesus has enough resources to feed and help anyone who comes to him and reaches out to him. 500 years ago, uh, There's a man named Thomas Cranmer who lived in England. He was one of the founders of the Anglican Church. And he wrote a prayer that was inspired by these words of the Syrophoenician woman. Her, and it begin, it's a prayer that's uh, often used in the communion service in uh, the Anglican Church. And it begins with these words. We do not presume to come to your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord who delights in showing mercy. You see, he he saw here that this woman's attitude is actually the attitude that every one of us need to come to Jesus with. Saying, Jesus, I need you. I don't have all the right qualifications, but I come to you knowing that I don't deserve you, but I need you, and you have enough to feed me. You delight in showing mercy. And so we can approach Jesus like this woman did with boldness because he delights in showing mercy. Ephesians uh, 2.17 says this, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, Paul's talking about the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. He's talking about the Jews. For through Jesus we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So if you feel like spiritual outsider. If you have felt like that you don't quite fit in the church, but if something is drawing you to Jesus, this passage is good news for you. You don't have to pretend that you're something you're not. You don't have to hide things in your background that you might be ashamed of. Just come to Jesus and keep seeking him until you find him and until you receive the blessing of knowing that you belong in his family. We can approach Jesus. And we can come to him with boldness. Second, so approach Jesus with boldness. Second, persevere in prayer. Notice the word that's used to describe these people's requests. In verse 26 and verse 32, they begged him. These aren't just sort of polite requests, but intense pleas. Right? We see a desperate parent coming to Jesus on behalf of her troubled daughter, begging him to help. We see a group of people distressed by their friend's inability to communicate, and they took initiative to go and find Jesus and bring their friend to him, saying, please, Jesus, help us. No one else can, and this is a model for us that we, can, uh, we should bring our loved ones and their needs before God in prayer, as the woman brought her child's need before God in prayer, as these friends brought this man's need before God, before Jesus in prayer, and we should persevere in prayer, even when Jesus' initial answer may not seem completely favorable. Jesus said his disciples should always pray and not give up, that we should keep on asking and seeking and knocking. Uh, Martin Luther struggled with deep depression, bordering on despair at many points of his life. And he found great comfort, especially in this story, of the Syrophoenician woman. And in his sermon on this story, he said this. He said, nothing must deter us from calling upon God in prayer. The devil always needles with thoughts of how God's face is turned away from us, that he wants nothing more to do with us. But this woman let nothing deter her. She held on to Christ's word, and she refused to leave him alone. She was like Jacob in the Old Testament, who wrestled with God and didn't give up until he received blessing from God now if you read the story of Jacob wrestling with God it's in Genesis 32 uh, and I I don't have time to explain the whole background of the story but there's a lot to the story but he emerges from his encounter with God uh, both profoundly humbled and deeply blessed Uh, the account says he literally wrestled with this man all night I mean talk about an intense experience where you're completely exhausted at the end of it Right? There's a very intense experience that he had uh, with sort of wrestling with God. Um, so first he, he's profoundly humbled. His, his hip ends up getting put out of joint, and literally he's limping the next day when he, he gets up. Uh, so he's deeply humbled. He had sort of, and and and, his, and and in a way that he had not been humbled before in his life. But he also emerges from that experience deeply blessed. He said, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He received a new name from God. That's where Jacob was named Israel. And that's a picture from the Bible of what happens when we persevere in prayer. Right? Sometimes when we persevere in prayer, we become deeply humbled. We're sort of brought face to face with our own weakness and our own uh, need and our own uh, physical and spiritual dependence on God. And at the same time, God richly blesses those who seek him and persevere in prayer. Sometimes God gives us exactly what we were praying for all along. And I think even more often, God gives us something different or something better. Something more than we initially imagined or hoped for. Sometimes we start praying for one thing and we seek God and keep asking for that thing. And then over time, we maybe realize, you know, there's a bigger picture that God wants us to see. And... And it's not just what we were initially thought we needed, but God wants to give us something even more, even more lasting, even more valuable. So we should persevere in prayer, not only for ourselves, but also for others around us. Third, uh, we can praise Jesus for his compassion. So approach him with boldness, persevere in prayer, and praise him for his compassion. Verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. That's an echo of Genesis chapter 1 where at the end of God's work in creation it says, God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. He had done all things well. And we too should praise Jesus for the good work that we see him doing. Right? When we read this story in scripture, we can praise him. Right? Not only this woman came to Jesus and now her daughter was at peace. The demon had been driven out. And she also walked away with the assurance that Jesus would always be sufficient for her every need and that she and her people would also have a place at the table in the family of God. And think about the man, deaf and speech impaired, who encountered Jesus, his tongue was released, he spoke plainly. He could go and testify to others of the power of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus. These are wonderful works of God. We should praise him when we see these works in Scripture. And we should also look around and praise Jesus when we see him doing good works in our own lives or in the lives of those around us. Right? Even looking around at this room, right? Jesus is alive today. He has power and compassion to do wonderful things among us. You know, some of you may have once felt like an outsider, but now you found a place, you found a home in the family of God, and you know that Jesus says, You belong with him. Some of you can remember a time when, spiritually speaking, you were deaf or just unable to listen and understand God's word. You just sort of brushed it off and went your way and didn't sink in at all. And you feel like, wow, God sort of opened my ears in a a new way. Now I can hear and put into words some truths about who he is. Maybe you can remember a time where you felt deeply insecure. And now you know that you can approach Jesus with boldness and with confidence. And so, you know, Jesus is still doing these, these, these wonderful things today. So let's praise him for his compassion. Approach him with boldness and persevere in prayer and praise him for his compassion. So let's end with prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for uh, this story. We thank you for your compassion for uh, people from all nations. We thank you for your compassion for these two people in this story, this, uh, this woman and her daughter, these friends and this man. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would experience uh, your uh, power and compassion in our own lives, your uh, work of restoration. Lord, that you would give us confidence to approach you boldly, that you would give us perseverance, Lord, to persevere in prayer even when we uh, may not see a result immediately, But that we would persevere in reaching out to you and drawing near to you and not letting anything get between us and you. And we pray that we would look around and praise you for your compassion, Lord, that we would not neglect to do that, uh, but that we would sing your praises as we see your good works uh, in the scriptures and in and around us today. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.
1: Amen.
0: Well, our closing hymn is uh, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, hymn number 136. Let's stand together as we conclude our service by singing with. end of our service this morning. Uh, Feel free to uh, join us for coffee and refreshments. If you'd like to help with uh, setting up or cleaning up coffee hour this summer, just head right into the kitchen. We'll have a short meeting there. And if you're staying for the Vacation Bible School meeting, we'll start that downstairs about 15 or 20 minutes. Go with this word of blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Oh